disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. In late 2017, Richmond Mayor LeVar Stoney announced a major development project that would transform the city's downtown. Navy Hill would include a new coliseum, along with apartment buildings, offices, shopping, and dining. More than two years later, many Richmonders have died on this hill, including the hill itself. What happened? How did we get here? Here with The Battle of Navy Hill. Stay with us. Full Disclosure airs on NPR member station VPM News, using the power of media to educate, entertain, and inspire. Learn more at vpm.org. Later in the show, we'll hear from Chelsea Higgs-Wise of Richmond for All on her role in the grassroots effort to stop Navy Hill. But first, a look back. How did Navy Hill even come to be? Who are the major players in the battle? And what even is tax increment financing? Here to break it all down is VPM's Richmond City Hall reporter, Roberto Roldan, who's been living, breathing, gosh, marinating in this Navy Hill topic for the better part of what, a year, sir? Uh, yeah, pretty much. So the proposal came out, I think, in the early summer, and pretty much since then... I've just been reading thousands of pages of documents and financial projections. I think in terms of financial projections, we're on the 27th version. So it's been really fun. Here's what I, you know, from an insider and an outsider, why should something like this be controversial at all? You have a a kind of a, a part of town, a massive swath of town. By the way, I was married at that Marriott right there. <laughs> and, you know, the centerpiece has always been the Richmond Coliseum. Now it's a huge rusted tin can and it shouldn't be controversial. Yes, you take that down. It's seen its glory days. It's past its useful life. You put up a new arena with massive seating that can be a world-class concert venue that maybe could bring the NCAA tournament games here again. Why was this attached to something so controversial? Well, I I mean, really, when you're talking about the controversy around this, it's like, how much time do you have, right? I think fundamentally, there's sort of um, a skepticism among the city of Richmond, uh, the residents of the city of Richmond, that we just can't handle a project of this size, right? Um, I think... Especially when you look across the country, you have a lot of these sort of mid-sized cities um, that maybe don't have the best record of economic development. Now, mid-sized cities are the place to be, right? Nashville, Charlotte, things like that. Um, And they want to take on these ambitious projects, but you have these lifelong residents who have seen, you know, years and and decades of failed projects. And they say this might be a new Richmond, but, you know, the, the city government is still the same. Um, and I think fundamentally that's where we're at. We we had the Washington Redskins training facility that took much longer to pay off uh, and pay for itself than we had planned. A lot of the things that were promised didn't materialize. Roberto, before you came to this city, we had a great bike race, which was supposed to change <laughs> yeah, everything yeah. in 2015. Yeah, you had a bike race. And, and I think that's the problem. You had all these failed economic development projects. And I think fundamentally, for most people who probably don't even, you know, they're not reading the financial projections on this. They're not reading the developer's agreement. But for them, they just have this knee-jerk reaction to, we have all these failed projects. Why would we let the city government do one that's one and a half billion dollars, the largest economic development project that's almost ever been proposed outside of the the Amazon HQ2 in Northern Virginia? We had Mayor Stoney on the show and he said, look, I, you know, I, I, I posed the question to him. What if you were to just let the invisible hand of gentrification that has converted uh, formerly derelict areas like Scott's Edition and, you know, the theater district into uh, 
you know, that's controversial too, if you believe that that gentrification is kind of a quality tax base, but it's better than it was before, just this desert of pawn shops or, or you know, tiny little uh, grocery stores that sell uh, you know, grain alcohol. Um, what if you were to just let that run its course? Gentrification would at some point hit what they're calling the Navy Hill area. I mean, you have, uh, what is it, Fatty Smokes Barbecue, which mm-hmm. is there, the convention center. I mean, it does need a refresh. Yeah. Um, wouldn't that just take care of itself over time? Well, so I think one of the arguments that uh, Stoney has made is that this area hasn't had that sort of organic growth. And I think he's certainly right that there's not been that type of growth in this neighborhood. And I think that's for a few reasons. So one, it's city-owned land, right? This is the first time that the city has offered to sell this land up. Um, Some of these parcels that the city plans to sell to these Navy Hill developers don't even like really exist in, in sort of the records. And then I think lastly, a lot of this doesn't have underground infrastructure, especially the places that are currently just parking lots. There's no underground infrastructure there. There's no way to connect to the sewer system or to the water system. So, really? Yeah. It's gonna, I mean, it's going to require a lot of underground infrastructure. Part of this project is also reopening 6th Street. 6th Street ends because of the marketplace. It it ends. So they have to reopen the street, repave a new road. Um, a lot of this just doesn't... The marketplace being a failed project of yesteryear. Yeah, exactly. And And I mean, I think... So a lot of this just doesn't even exist as something that can be bought or sold to developers at the moment. So a couple of questions actually for you on the history of the area. Michael Paul Williams of the Richmond Times-Dispatch was on the show, and it's an affront to some people that Navy Hill is being brandished as a, as a kind of a name, as a, as a branding vehicle for this entire thing. Why is that controversial? Tell me about the history of the tract, the area. I mean, it's uh, inextricably linked to the history of the interstate in 64 and 95. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so I haven't personally done a lot of reporting on this. Um, my colleague Ben Pavier mostly did a lot of the reporting on the history of Navy Hill. But, I mean, the the story is one that pretty much rings true for historic African-American communities across the country, right? So you had this thriving African-American community. Um, I think there were about 500 families living there at one point. And then, you know, they put I-95, I-64 sort of through the community, tearing up the community. By the 1960s, city leaders came in and they said, you know, this is a blighted area of the city. Um, And once they put in the Coliseum in the 70s, the last few homes that remained there were were pretty much gone. And I think when you look at sort of the history of a lot of African-American communities across the country, this is a common story, right? So you have public officials who decide to run interstates right through African-American neighborhoods. Then when that decreases property values, you call the area blighted, and then you use that as an excuse for redevelopment for non-African-American, non-minorities. So in a vacuum, if there was just to be this request for purchase, the city would say, okay, the Coliseum is officially past its useful life. I think the last show it aired was like a Disney on ice thing (laughs) around Thanksgiving of... I don't know, 2018 or some such. It's it's really, you know, you the place just looks like Harlem Globetrotters versus Washington Generals. Yeah. And, you know, you get that cool in the gang feel. It definitely needs an update, right? Mm-hmm. It definitely needs to be raised. Why couldn't that just be put out in terms of a request for purchase? You're saying the infrastructure in the area is so, um, is so worn out that you can't just pluck a kind of a world-class 
arena replacement, a 2020 vintage replacement right there? No. So the arena part of it does have all that infrastructure, right? Because you have the existing arena. It's mostly the parcels around it. So a lot of the the area around it is things like surface parking lots or um, parking garages. Those areas are not going to have those same services. Um, but I think what you touched on there is is sort of important, right, is that the city is going to own that arena. So they're not putting out a request for private developers to come build an arena that they own. They're asking for private developers to build an arena that the city would own. And I think that's one of the main criticisms, too, is there's a reason why when you look across the country that most of these types of arenas are publicly owned, right? And that's because it's not it's not a good business. Yeah. Um, most public arenas don't make money. They're subsidized sometimes heavily, sometimes a little bit. But most of all of them are subsidized by local governments. They're treated as sort of like a public library. And I've heard Mayor LeVar Stoney make that sort of argument that it's like a public library. You're offering a sort of cultural center for the city. And I think fundamentally, one of the, the issues with this project that a lot of people have is that we're sort of privatizing the things that are going to make money, private apartments, private shops. Richmond's a growing city, and I imagine if you build apartments, people will fill them. But what we're doing is we're making public the riskiest part, which is a downtown arena. We have heard this idea of private profits and socialized risk again, which was a mm-hmm. specter that was invoked during the financial crisis. You had these, you know, when you talk about too big to fail and bailing out Wall Street and, and whatnot, uh, these these uh, executives and their shareholders profited privately, what with dividends and outsized profits, but the risk was ultimately borne by the taxpayers. And that is a concept that seems to creep up here with uh, critics of this project here. While the city would like you to think that um, – over time, this is a risk that's not going to be borne by taxpayers. We're going to husband the tax revenue and make a special district and earmark it all to very profitable uses. In fact, you have a private development group which did come in. One group came in and under the terms of the request for purchase. Could you explain that for us? Was it under Tom Farrell, the, the CEO and chairman of Dominion? A private investor group came in and said, we will do it under these terms? Uh, no, actually. So uh, essentially, the the RFP or the request for proposal was sort of thought up by by the city, um, and it was based on a couple of area plans, the Pulse Corridor plan, which um, would connect to the Pulse, which is our bus rapid transit system here. But there was really no public process, right? No one they they used some public documents that had a public process, planning documents, but they never really went out to the public and said, "Hey, we want to create." a huge neighborhood, basically a new neighborhood around the downtown arena. And we want to put this request for proposal out. What do you think? That didn't happen. Um, It was sort of thought up by Mayor LeVar Stoney and some other administration officials. The request went out. Surprisingly, um, before the request even went out, NH District Corporation, the Navy Hill District Corporation, who are these wealthy developers, already existed. So you know, you could argue that they were sort of waiting in the wing for this request for proposal, potentially had been tipped off, whatever uh, you want to say. But essentially, the request for proposal went out. It only had a couple months open and only one developer came back. There was no competitive bidding process. It seemed as though there was a, a request for a proposal made for one very specific group and that very specific group responded. Tell us about this tax increment financing. Uh, which, you know, trying to de-jargonize it as much as possible. It should be pretty straightforward. If the city is in cahoots with you and you're working on something, there's going to be sewerage, there's going to be infrastructure stuff. You talk about uh, continuing streets. There are certain buried streets there that the mayor talked about. How do you get your head around this? What is it? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think for reporters who have been covering this, that's sort of been the hardest part is sort of the public education (laughs) component of this, Um, because I think a lot of people don't know what tax increment financing is, especially in the city of Richmond. Um, Tax increment financing has been used across the country um, to varying degrees of success, but this will be the first time that the city of Richmond actually uses tax increment financing for any economic development project. And sort of to what tax increment financing is, you're essentially creating an 80-block district, right, in downtown. And for those 80 blocks, they'll see what kind of tax revenue the city received in the last year, in 2018, and then they'll use that number as a benchmark. So any revenue over the 2018 levels are what the financial folks would call incremental revenue. That would go into a special fund that would only be used to pay back the bond. And so what you're doing is it it allows you to sort of say that this project has very little risk, right? Because the city will always make what they were making in terms of property tax and stuff in downtown at 2018 levels. Mm. That'll never go away. That'll never be used to pay the bond. But anything above that, so you're talking about 2% growth in property values, just basic inflation, new businesses that pop up, new bars and restaurants downtown, all of that tax revenue for the next 30 years, essentially, will go into a special fund to pay back the arena. And that's kind of what tax increment financing is, is that when bondholders basically give the city a loan, they are only allowed to go after new revenue over the next 30 years. How do you have visibility into 30 years? I mean, we go back 30 years ago. You look at some of these aborted projects, the marketplace, and yeah, yeah. some people still call out. I, yeah, I remember back in the day reading about the canal walk that that was supposed to be transformational. I don't, I don't mean to wax too cynical about these things, but it's vexingly difficult in an interest rate environment right now, which is unnaturally mm-hmm. low, a bond environment which has been very forgiving to say what the world is going to look like in 30 years. But you then necessarily have to plan for a long term. Yeah. You know, revenue bond. Well, I, I mean, I would say two things. One, um, from the city's perspective, they don't have to see 30 years in the future, right? These bonds are called non-recourse bonds because essentially the bondholders are looking at this special incremental revenue. And if that's not enough to pay the bond that year, they don't have a choice, right? That's all they get. They can't come after the city and say, well, we want your general fund revenue. We want the money going to schools because you're not meeting the expectations for making these payments. They can't do that. So really um, calculating 30 years out, that's on the bondholders, not on the city. How non-recourse is it to the city, though? I mean, so... You get into esoterica with this, but... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's my understanding that it is uh, non-recourse. I I mean, it's pretty much in the name, and I think that that's sort of the understanding of a lot of the financial advisors, some of the academics that I've spoken to. Um, They can't go after the city. Now, we can talk about if the city doesn't pay this TIF bond back, right, how many bondholders are going to be likely to want to give the city of Richmond this type of bond financing again in the future? Probably not if they sort of default on a a bond of this size. But at the end of the day, they can't come back after the city to make those bond payments. Um, And I think that's why generally with these kind of things, bondholders require one and a half times the amount of revenue to the bond. Um, and I think as a margin of safety, yeah, as a margin of safety, and I think that goes to show that the bondholders really um, understand the risk that they're taking on, um, and these things are generally higher interest rates than recourse bonds, right? Because they have a higher level of risk for the bondholders. 
some people talk about one of the problems that's held Richmond back is whataboutism. Uh, many times you bring up, say, Monument Avenue or the monuments, and people say, well, what about the schools? Why aren't we talking about the schools? In this case, mm-hmm. Navy Hill and development and tax increment financing comes up, and people say, well, what about the schools? Is it zero sum? Do they have anything to do with one another? Or is the mayor and city council taking its eyes off the schools crisis or the housing crisis to do something like this? I think that's a complicated question. Um, so, I mean, when you hear the mayor talk about this project, he would say, you know, if it's successful, right, if we're meeting these lofty projections of, uh, I think, a billion dollars in revenue, um, whether or not you choose to to sort of believe that, um, that's what they're operating on. That's the assumption they're operating on. And if we get a billion dollars in excess revenue, that's going to mean a lot of money for schools. So from the mayor's perspective and the the people who are for this Navy Hill project, in the long term, there's going to be more money for schools. So they're thinking about schools. From the perspective of, say, the critics of this project, uh, it's a little bit different. They say, we've spent the last year absorbed in this debate about Navy Hill when we have much more pressing problems. We have a plus 20% poverty rate in the city of Richmond. We have crumbling school infrastructure, um, you know, water heaters, AC that doesn't work in the middle of summer. We're being distracted by this big shiny object and taking our attention away from more pressing issues. There's also, I mean, these TIF bonds, right? We talked about this 80 blocks of downtown. You're going to absorb future tax revenue from properties that already exist. Even if you say a building in downtown, 2% growth in property taxes on a $100 million building in downtown, that is going to be millions of dollars over the next 30 years that would have otherwise gone to the city's general fund. That could have been used for things like schools, for filling potholes, basic government structure. Um, That is going to be absorbed by this TIF district. The mayor would say we would get that back and more. But other people look at it and they say, well. you say we will get that back and more, does that that veer into potential trickle-down economics? This is what I want to understand. Assuming everything goes on cylinder and you see an abundance, you see property values bid up, you see a a buoyant secondary market. I mean, maybe Navy Hill ends up, NH Corp ends up selling its stake Mm -hmm. to other people and developers come in and then there's a huge windfall and the rising tide lifts all boats of, of Richmond and builds its tax base. Is that the scenario? Uh, pretty much. I mean, I don't know that they would necessarily call that trickle-down economics, but I, I mean, I think that is the point of really any economic development project, right? It's that potentially you subsidize some private development and they put new buildings onto the tax rolls. You get that property tax and then you can then use it for schools and other infrastructure. I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about here. But from the critics' perspective, I mean, uh, the projections have been about anywhere between 200 and $300 million of revenue over the next 30 years that would have otherwise gone to the city for things like schools will go into this project. Whether or not that comes back, you know, who can predict the future? But for them, they're saying we're tying up hundreds of millions of dollars over the next 30 years that could be going to schools. So I think to say whether or not this is going to ultimately benefit the schools or, say, potholes, anything like that is sort of a guessing game at this point. We're talking about predicting the future. You know, on the margin has the redevelopment of the 17th Street Market, which has kind of hit rough waters, I believe. This was That was done under LeVar Stoney as well, and that required digging and sewerage and bringing new restaurants to the area. It was a couple blocks uh, east of mm-hmm. it. It was an, another one of these Ballyhoo yeah, down projects. Yeah, in, in Shaco Bottom. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's, there's an abundance of 
failed projects in the city of Richmond or projects that failed to meet sort of the, the lofty expectations uh, that had been pitched when they were trying to get it passed through city council. Certainly the 17th Street Market something that critics point to. But I don't know that that one necessarily is sort of the, the biggest one. It's just perhaps the most recent sort of failure of city government to do some of these projects. Mm. And were you following the stadium in the bottom opposition several years ago? It seems that there are these contours, that there's this grand project of redevelopment, and then people worry about uh, what this means to uh, kind of ancestral heritage or how sacred the land is. And a strange coalition of opposition voices ends up deep-sixing a project. I think the actress Nepita Leongo was speaking on behalf of uh, Solomon Northup's family in 12 Years a Slave said that you know she effectively put it to death. And then you'd be on the west end of Richmond and then some of the wealthy families were like, kill the stadium in the bottom, no stadium in the bottom. So there was a strange coalition that formed. And to that end, I'm curious what the opposition looks like here. Um, the contours of people. You have young people in the area, some of the biggest beneficiaries of something like this, like the urban-minded, millennial, pulse-using people who are kind of saying hell no to the project. Yeah, and I think that was, uh, for me as a reporter, probably the most interesting thing about getting to understand who the people that are opposed to this project are. Richmond is a very democratic city. Um, There's only one person who's a registered Republican on Richmond City Council out of nine members. The mayor, Mayor LeVar Stoney, is obviously a Democrat as well. But the biggest opposition group is Richmond for All, which is a, a progressive group in the city of Richmond. And I think that that also just comes down to, one, the failed projects, but also, I mean, you have a lot of overlap with affordable housing advocates who um, see a a project that's going to have rents um, that are uh, pretty crazy. Um, If you're looking at them now, maybe not crazy for that area that it's in in downtown. But I think that the biggest opposition to this is sort of the grassroots progressive opposition um, who look at a project that's going to benefit some of the wealthiest people in the city of Richmond and say, like you said, hell no. Um, and I think that's sort of the the two sides of this is that when you look at sort of who has come out for this project and sort of endorsed it, and then you look at who has come out against it, you really have the sort of um, moneyed people, the people with power. So, you know, you have a lot of chambers of commerce, business groups uh, who come out for it. And then you look at who's against it. And it's you know, grassroots progressive groups, um, the Virginia Education Association, the local teachers union. That's that's kind of how this wow. uh, that's kind of how this is set up is, you know, it's almost created a sort of them versus us of normal everyday Richmonders and sort of the old moneyed Richmond. So there's this there's this Freedom of Information Act uh, gadfly who's trying to gum up the process. There's uh, Richmond for all. There's, mm-hmm. you know, Chelsea Wise. You hear her sometimes on WRIR. You read about certain things in the Virginia Mercury. Um, you know, Robert Zullo, the editor of the Virginia Mercury, noted that, say, if this were happening 10 to 15 years ago, Dominion plus its coterie of movers and shakers, that that talk about Dominion and omnipotence, it would have just been a done deal. You could have just mm-hmm. printed it. But the grassroots opposition now is, is uh, really, really getting in the way of this. Yeah. And, and Robert Zullo is a former uh, RTD reporter, former City Hall reporter. So he's covered Richmond City Hall. Um, talking to uh, some Richmond City Council members have made sort of that same comparison of this project just sort of screams old Richmond. Um, and I think sort of what they're getting at there with this this old Richmond is that you have 
all of these wealthy backers. You have Tom Farrell, the head of Dominion. Dominion's like the largest corporation in, I want to say in Virginia, mm-hmm. um, not just the city of Richmond, but in the old Richmond, the Richmond that a lot of people remember from, say, the 80s or the 90s, um, one of the things that they remember is sort of corruption, nepotism, um, a reputation that the city still struggles, uh, the city administration still struggles with. And 10 years ago, 20 years ago, if the the people with money and interest uh, in the city of Richmond wanted something, it would go quietly through city council. That's clearly not the case anymore. I don't know that we knew that that wasn't the case anymore until this project came about. I have never seen this sort of grassroots opposition, the amount that's that's come up against this project, but clearly that's not the way that it works anymore. And I think when we get into this old Richmond, new Richmond argument, we also sort of highlight one of the big criticisms of this project and, and one of the things that have, has really sort of been a nuisance uh, for the administration as we've moved through this project is there was not a whole lot of front-end public engagement before this RFP went out. Like I said earlier, there was no going to the people and saying, hey, look, this is the the sort of proposal that we might be looking for. Um, What do you all think? You know, there there wasn't a, a meeting held in every city council district or anything like that. And I think as we've moved through this process, that's come back to bite them because they don't have a lot of support from everyday Richmonders. Wouldn't that have been so unwieldy in their defense, though? It's always said that, you know, to make a nice souffle, you have to crack several eggs, right? And and you only have so much time in office. Maybe LeVar Stoney has his eyes set on other office. Who knows? <laughs> mm-hmm. But to do this, you have to be ambitious. You have to take a huge bet. I mean, sure, but <laughs> like we're seeing moving through the process, um, you know, there's some polls that are being released uh, I'll give it who's backing, who's paying for these polls um, isn't known. They're unknown. But we know that they're at least being contracted with American Research Group, which is a, um, a, a reputable polling agency. And, I mean, they've been polling city council districts and finding that a majority of residents oppose this project. So, I mean, sure, it could have been difficult on the front end to sort of engage the community. But it's um, being backed up on the back end. Though. But, yeah, I mean, you're paying for it on the back end. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it, it could have made the process a little more unwieldy, um, but from my estimation, it could have saved them a, a lot of headache if they would have gotten um, support on the front end for this project from everyday Richmonders, because ultimately their elected officials, their city council members are going out to their districts. Um, Chris Hilbert, the city council member for Northside, North Richmond, he said, I've talked to a number of people in my district, residents in my district about this project. Not a single one of them has told me that they want this project to move forward. That's what the administration is facing because, in part, they might not have gone out and done sort of the community work and got the community behind it on the front end. Well, Roberto, I'm curious about VCU as the other 10-ton elephant in this debate. And you can't talk about downtown RVA without talking about Virginia Commonwealth University, which really over the past 10, 15 years has been the acquisitive bitter of size. I mean, anything down there that's left over ends up – you go up and down Franklin Street, obviously um, Grace Street. VCU is buying up everything. It's grown quite a bit, and mm-hmm. it's moving up into all these different corridors. Uh, the, the big players seem to have given their huge endorsement to this, whether you talk about the Richmond Chamber, uh, Visit Richmond, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the U-Crops. Um, everybody seems to be uh, for it, but there seems to be a really kind of a vox populi against it. 
Yeah, and I, and I mean, I think that what you said there is just kind of highlighting what I said earlier, which is the the people in business and business interests, the people who uh, people like VCU who stand to actually benefit directly from this project, they're all behind it. It's it's sort of the everyday Richmonder who um, is really at best split on this proposal. Um, as to VCU, I mean, I, I, I think you're right. You can't talk about downtown Richmond without talking about VCU. Um, Virginia Commonwealth University is the largest driver of economic uh, activity in the city of Richmond. They have 40,000 students, which for a city of our size of roughly 200,000 people, um, you know, they're bringing in almost a quarter of the residents here in the city of Richmond. Um, they're behind it. Um, and that's because when you look at this project, some of it is Class A office buildings, and they want to move their health system, the VCU uh, health system, they want to move their administration into a brand new building. Hmm. Um, and, and so they're directly related to the project. Um, they weren't very upfront about that when they initially endorsed the project, and that sort of goes to some of the reporting that we did. But they do stand to benefit from the project. So obviously they're going to get behind it. Um, look into your crystal ball, knowing that this is such a fluid situation and it changes all the time. It, it makes for some must-see closed-circuit television uh, at, at city council meetings. But is there another player that's going to come in? Is there an 11th-hour surprise, maybe another bidder? I have a better way. I think I left my, my crystal ball at home. Uh, but I think... Um, this proposal is probably done. I don't know that after the amount of money and effort that the developers and the city have put into it, if there's really sort of a round two, um, I think we just sort of move on. Mayor LeVar Stoney's coming up for election uh, in November, and I don't know that he's really willing to, to turn around and go at it again with a different proposal um, so close to the election. But, I, I mean, again, I think that it's hard to believe that nothing would happen to this area if it, like the developers say, is such a valuable area, so ripe for development, I think it's hard to imagine that nothing would happen if we don't have this Navy Hill project, given that Richmond is a growing city. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. That is Roberto Roldan. He's covering the uh, Battle of Navy Hill, as we're going to call this episode, uh, for VPM. You can follow his many beautiful bylines and headlines at vpm.org. Thank you so much, sir. You're always welcome on this show. Thanks, Robin. And what about that opposition? Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Joining me in the heart of downtown RVA, they call this the Arts District. I think it's uh, tracked B1 in Monroe Ward. Uh, we are in the shadow of an enormous, hideous police department sculpture. It's very Orwellian. But all that aside, Chelsea Higgs-Wise, welcome. She's a member of Richmond for All, a political organizing coalition that speaks to, quote, Putting people over profit. It's been consistent in its opposition to the Navy Hill project. You can also hear Chelsea on WRIR's Race Capital. How are you? I am doing really well. I'm really well. How are you? Well, whiplashing movements every day. Uh, you know, if, if we wanted to tape this a few days ago, it would have been different. It's put to rest. It resurrects itself. And this drama has been going on now for the better part of a year and a half. Yeah, it is a never ending, um, like you said, a whiplash is how we really have been framing this. And today is going to be different than tomorrow. And at this point, we've just been ready to see what will come out in the news next and to see how the developers will try and play the council. But it's still going. It's not done until it's done. And that's really where we are right now is just waiting for the final gavel to come down <laughs> on these ordinances. Well, take me back, Chelsea, to I guess the inception of this was autumn of 2017, where LeVar Stoney, was that right, proposed it. Mm -hmm. um, 
what is uh, what what initially tripped up your skepticism and then the the kind of the the anger about it that seemingly fomented across various groups in Richmond? So many members of Richmond for All have also been in organizing in Richmond for many years prior to Navy Hill. So people's memories aren't that bad. They remember in 2013 and 2014 when they were resisting the Shaco Stadium project mm. with Dwight Jones. And back then, people could hear the rumors of the next big thing, which would be an arena. And so when this came out with LeVar Stoney, we had already heard uh, whispers of Tom Farrell saying, hey, you know what would be great is having a big arena here. Next thing you know, LeVar saying, you know what would be great? Be a big arena here. And so we've been around long enough to identify the players who's behind these projects. And it's the same narratives, the same people that were working with Dwight Jones prior to anyone knowing what Navy Hill Development District Corp was really about. And so what a big complaint about the Shaco Stadium organizing, um, especially with the Virginia Defenders, shout out to them, Anna Edwards and the Sacred Burial Ground Project has sprouted out of that. But one thing that we heard was um, that the city wasn't taking care of the historic value of Richmond. And we it's, it's kind of a funny joke that their next project would then be colonizing the name of Navy Hill, a historic black neighborhood in here in Richmond, and saying it, hey, this is what's going to be good for Richmond. So when we first heard it, we immediately knew what this was. We knew the people. And we said, well, we've got to put a stop to this right now. But here's the deal. The status quo or the status quo ante, whatever you want to call it, the quid pro quo. I did not take Latin in high school. But nevertheless, uh, how is that honoring the neighborhood, the dereliction that it's been in right now? I don't mean to offend anyone, but you mm -hmm. look at the Blues Armory, you look at what's going on outside of that, mm -hmm. you look at years of failed municipal projects, this yeah. enormous tract of land. The Coliseum is so sad. Mm -hmm. It is sad, but you know what's sadder is the people that are being evicted from Richmond, the school children that don't have the funds to go to even get a quality education. So the problem is, is that people are highlighting the wrong problem. And we believe in development. We believe in growth, especially at Richmond for All. And I think that's something that we keep hearing. So, well, you're not, you're anti the development. You want it to stay a wasteland. Um <laughs> I just have to go back to remember it was not a wasteland before the first Coliseum. It was a black neighborhood. Black people, black churches were pushed out just like they were in Jackson Ward with the highways with the first Coliseum. We have on record that over 500 like multiple families were pushed out of that area for the Coliseum and they were black. So I, I understand what it looks like right now and that it, it's, it's failing and it's so bad. But remember what got us there was pushing people out and building a Coliseum. So don't tell me that that's the solution now for the way to make Richmond better and to meet the needs that we need. We don't need 2,000 more office jobs. I need to make sure that the people that are that are homeless, that are sleeping in tents, have some type of revenue coming towards the city so that they can be placed in homes and that they can be heard and seen. I... This is coming from me, but at Richmond for All, we really believe in people-first development and that by generating money for us, by us, we can be able to grow the city in a way that we don't have to say, we need rich people to come in. That's exactly what Dwight Jones told us. That's what Mayor LeVar Stoney is telling us. The only way to make our city better is to invite millionaires into our city. And 
I I cannot accept that, that that is actually an answer. And then when you look across the nation, the neoliberal uh, trendy thing to do for moderate Democrats is to build an arena. You're looking at it in Maryland. They're getting sued right now for what their TIF project has made for their city. Look at Kansas City. And right now, the same consultants that are here in Richmond had a terrible prediction of the type of money their financing would be. Looking at Chicago, which is where these consultants came from, none of these projects have been able to bring the money that the consultants have said, and all of the areas have then been disinvested. They need to have been bailed out by their city government. And then the first people to be hurt by that lack in the budget has been the schools. So I I get really passionate about like, well, what about doing something for the Coliseum area? What about the people that actually still do use that Coliseum area? And those are the people without the homes that are getting pushed out. And if we start looking at people first, we can have real projects that matter for us. In your mind's eye, if you were to go back to uh, 2017, how would you have rolled up your sleeves if you were LeVar Stoney? And LeVar Stoney, you know, we had him on the show recently. He mm-hmm. thinks that you can't just leave this to the invisible hand of gentrification that has lifted Scott's Edition or Churchill or Manchester. Yeah. That this is a – you have to restore the grid. There are uh, sewerage issues. There are enormous things that by definition for a request for purchase, the government would have to backstop. In addition to the fact that Richmond owns mm-hmm. that enormous swath of land. But how would you have done it? Well, number one, I would partner with people that know more about this. And this is why Richmond for All pushed for the independent commission to come about. Let's remember that right now everyone says, oh, we had public meetings and the commission came out. Well, nobody wanted the commission, but we got that commission going from Richmond for All. And on that commission are actual developers, is people in financing. And I'm a community activist. My master's is in social work. So to answer your question, what I've been telling people is that, well, number one, we would start with process. We've been hearing from the counselors that there's no actual process for this. We heard from um, council, Councilwoman Stephanie Lynch that we aren't even following the procurement laws set by the state right now. Richmond City has opted out of following those. And we've been hearing from black contractors that aren't Al Bowers that that is right now stopping much of their participation. Um, So I would really, if I was him, I would have never, one, kept to my campaign promise of no big shiny projects that he promised us. And I would actually create a process that says, hey, what do we need and who's ready to come up and help pay for that in an area that makes sense? Hmm. And that can start, but we can't. The invisible hand is really interesting because we believe in also saying their name. That's why we can't just say the status quo or the powers that be. We have to say people's name of who's behind this project, of C.T. Hill, of Tom Farrell, like these big names, Spectra. We have to know these people because then you do a simple Google, you can find that Tom Farrell has been using his powers just like Navy Hill to what they did to Union Hill and Buckingham. You can find that Spectra has not one, but multiple lawsuits about racial discrimination and over 11 counts of sexual harassment. But these are the people that LeVar Stoney has put in place to run our Coliseum vendors. So when we want real development and big growth, and if I was LeVar Stoney, I would start making sure the characters that I'm standing beside have integrity, have a background that's not specifically oppressing black people and the areas that they build. You want to look at the very top. And when I'm looking at uh, About Us, Navy Hill Foundation Board of Directors, Tom Farrell, who is the chairman, president and CEO of Dominion Energy, the big utility 
player in Virginia, is the, the headline player on it. But Marty Barrington, of course, is president of the Navy Hill District Corporation. Uh, he is the former president of Altria, which yep. is the parent of Philip Morris, the biggest cigarette manufacturer in the United States. If I look at these various uh, cross currents and uh, cross associations, Tom Farrell of Dominion is the presiding director of Altria Group and a member of the, you, you look down at this whole thing. He's on the board of trustees of the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. Keep going. Chairman of the Richmond Performing Arts Center. Yep. He's past chairman of the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, uh, board of trustees of the Virginia Business Council, former member of the Board of Visitors at VCU and, the, and UVA where he served as rector. Uh, former chairman of the Virginia Governor's Commission on Higher Education and State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. And I didn't even get into Barrington's various other things. Yeah. Um, it goes back to this conversation we had with Michael Paul Williams. The economic center of gravity in this city is still overwhelmingly uh, corporate and white. Very. And the political center of gravity is African-American. And you do have to go through the council and you do have to go through um, the mayor, be it Dwight Jones or uh, LeVar Stoney. For now. And then there's Bill Goodwin, uh, you know, retired chairman. <laughs> but they also mixed it up in having uh, Melody Barnes, who I believe was in the Obama administration. I, I I don't know how – again, counterfactual. I don't know how you would build this from scratch. Mm -hmm. Would you have this endless comment period, bring everybody in? Do we you know, do we not make it about an arena anymore? People can't even agree on whether the Coliseum has to be replaced. Right, right. I mean we heard yesterday – just recently that uh, Ralph Northam, Governor Ralph Northam, was talking about a stadium idea that needs to come because the squirrels need a new place to, to play. So we – the city is growing. Ideas are coming. And no, it doesn't need to be this never-ending thing. And we need to stop talking about public process like it's impossible because that's really the problem that many people have just like, oh, the powers that be, the corporations, people with no name are going to handle it and it's just impossible for me to participate. Well, it's not actually. Right now we could have a public process. We could look at the needs without having New York Times come down and tell us that we're one of the worst in nation for housing evictions. Right? We know the data of what we need to do. Why don't we just start there, figure out how to pay for it in a way that's going to keep the money here in the city and not building corporations? Everybody keeps talking about jobs, jobs, jobs. As somebody that talks about racial narratives in the former capital of the Confederacy and what is going to attract black people to development and growth, it's always been the idea of jobs. Well, number one, Art Burton, a longtime community actor, activist in Richmond and leader of Community Unity and Action talks about, you know, black people have been offered a job since we got off the boat. We need more here. But if we're going to talk about jobs, we need to talk about if we want jobs to build community or if we want jobs to build corporations. It could be different. We could hire jobs for teachers. We just got word that the legislators cut school counselors and uh, teachers to help with English as second languages. Why are they inversely proportional, these things, though? Why? I mean, again— I understand there's a lot of, of whataboutism, as, yeah. as has been repeated on this yeah. show before, but it shouldn't be capital formation, business development versus education. In okay, theory, let me tell you why, Robert. Practice, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and tell you why. Hopefully in practice, the tax money would accrue and, and restore areas of blight. Okay. See, that eventually doesn't have to happen now. The big elephant in the room is the part that our taxation for corporations hasn't moved in over 40 years. We are in the bottom 10 of how high we are taxing corporations. Now, if we actually taxed all these corporations that were here in Virginia, then our general fund might actually have some money for the schools. But instead, our general fund is having to cover subsidies for people to be incentivized to build here when they're already here. 
So, yes, they are absolutely related. And the idea that they are not and one should be eventually cover the other is a lie. And the only thing that we're doing by spreading that lie is building the corporations right now and telling our schools to wait. It has everything to do with progressive taxation on these corporations. There's no reason that Tom Farrell and Dominion Energy should be making $200 million extra dollars when they lobby the General Assembly to say we need to be able to raise the rates because we're going to lose or we're not going to have enough energy. That turned out to be a lie and they made $200 million extra dollars. All of these things, they should have been taxing that and that going to the general fund to be able to do more for our schools. Instead, our city council and our legislators like Jeff Bourne are negotiating to give them coupons, like free things to build, y'all. They don't need them. So stop looking at me there. They're not that they're not related because they absolutely are. If we need money right now, tax the corporations. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Chelsea Higgs Wise, member of Richmond for All. Uh, it's been consistent in its opposition to the Navy Hill Project, which may or may not be uh, on uh, on its deathbed. You can also hear Chelsea on WRIR's race capital. Uh, Chelsea, um, I want to ask you now, if it were completely scrapped, if it completely goes to point blank or anything, could we just leave it alone and let the uh, inertia of gentrification reach it? I think about Jackson Ward. Mm-hmm. I think about the deuce. Mm-hmm. Is that quality gentrification? I mean, when poke shops open up or a little cafe shop opened up, I mean, I think about the, the history and the people who left and the dereliction and the various things that happened with the interstate. That the people that even... were pushed out, they didn't just leave. Right. Right. That doesn't even begin to restore what was there. I mean, if you had hipster bars and a restaurant corridor. Mm -mm. So what what do you think is kind of the manifest destiny of this track? Do we even have to care? We have to care. Otherwise, there aren't going to be any more black people. We won't have any more black counselors, and they won't have to go through black people in Richmond anymore. That was the whole problem with the 6th District being taken over by developers, is that the 6th District is a black district. And it would be one of the final ones to be taken over, and we wouldn't have a majority. And talking about this natural gentrification that's going, we don't want anything organic to happen because we know that that's going to be terrible for us. Looking at the at the market, that's always going to be terrible for the poorest people on the land. But so there has to be an intentional, purposeful project and a new RFP come to the city and focus on these needs. Uh, did you gain um, soccer or inspiration from what happened with, uh, you know, AOC and many contingents in New York versus Amazon's HQ2 in Long Island City? That I- was like a firewall that went up. And by the way, it's gotten a ton of, 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 of echo press. The New York Times went in and explored how much was kind of given in the way of backdoor uh, refunds to what ends up being a, a company helmed by the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos. And it was a kind of a dog and pony show, and they pitted cities against each other mm-hmm. in almost a Potemkin uh, uh, you know, contest. I, I wonder if that had much to do with this. Well, it, it absolutely does, and we see it happening, but we've been seeing it happen, right? So we didn't necessarily get the cues, but it's more of, yes, we see people all over having the same fight. And that's the really cool thing that's happening right now, Robin, is like this this feeling that's happening in the city and across Virginia. So not only have I been working in the city, but I've also been working at the legislators at, at the GA, and there is this new thing that's happening that people – 
are really being engaged in their listening. And, you know, uh, Dominion wasn't able to go and build their big compressor station in, in Union Hill. That's about to die. Navy Hill's about to die. The people are winning. Dominion and these big corporations, Dominion is just our example of our local corporation, right? Nova is getting Amazon. Terry McCullough left that door in. And so it just depends on who is your local corporation that you're fighting. Here in Richmond, it's Dominion. And But there's this thing that people are recognizing it. They're seeing for what it is. And now that's really going to come out in this next election in November right here in the city. Tell me more about that. One thing, it will die. Navy Hill will die on paper with the ordinances, but it will never die for LeVar Stoney. It will never die for the people that have been pushing for this project. It will never die for the people that really want to gain the city's trust again. You saw just um, at the tent camp meeting, Ellen— Explain the tent camp thing. We have tents. We have a a Hooverville in in, uh, Shaco right now with homeless people sleeping there. This has gotten— Mm-hmm. contemporaneous coverage. And and I don't know too much about it, um, but I what I do know is that they have been taking care of themselves for quite a long time, and recently they got a letter that they needed to move, and the they were foia the city was foia and talks and communications with Freedom VCU. of Information Act request. Thanks. Right. Um, so we can always do and get that information, and, and we saw, people saw that VCU and the city were having conversations to move this tent camp. And just this past week, Ellen Robertson, who is a sixth district councilwoman, was there. She was getting yelled at. She was getting called out. People were telling freedom of speech. I mean, people are really being held accountable because Ellen is one of those, another ones that has been promising a lot of things. And I live in her district. And Manchester is part of her district. Michael Hild is her fault. So Michael Hild, if you don't know, is just somebody that's actually serving jail time because of fraud and investment, but took over and bought up all all of Blackwell, quote unquote, Manchester, what it is now. So people are being held accountable here in Richmond, and that's going to show in November. It's going to show for, I can talk, I see right now, Mike Jones is going everywhere talking about tax abatements and really trying to get back on the right side of the narrative because he's been hanging around with Dominion. People are going to try and clean up their reputations real fast. And um, from what I heard, Mayor LeVar Stoney is going to stick this as uh, something that he's really proud of as far as Navy Hill. But I'm sure many people are telling him to run his way as fast as possible. You know, we're told consistently, and this gets hit in our heads, that Richmond has a poverty rate of 25.2 percent. I mean, that's something that stands out for uh, – until recently was the second highest in Virginia. This is the capital of a thriving state. If you look at northern Virginia and Amazon ultimately did get many concessions with Virginia Tech to build HQ2 in, in northern Virginia. Uh, if you look at what's gone on in the Beltway, uh, uh, things that have gone on, the, the, the capital development that with or without government nudging – what is ultimately going to cut into this poverty rate in this city? If if companies can go back and brandish this, hold up the bloody red shirt that you know we got we got pummeled in Navy Hill. Mm-hmm. And I'm look, I'm not trying to throw rhetorical red meat at you. In fairness, mm-hmm. this has happened with the marketplace. This has happened with what mm-hmm. was it, the Canal Walk, the various other misadventures, the Washington Stadium. It's, it's right, been... the Redskins Stadium, uh, which no one really. Oh, the bike race. We were promised a lot in 2015. We've been promised a lot of things. Yeah, and. The thing is, we have the receipts. I mean, people can say what they want, but at this point, we have plenty of history and numbers to to stand solid in our ground. So when a company like CoStar, which Mm -hmm. is thriving out of D.C., but is co-locating very aggressively in Richmond, kind of Mm -hmm. says, all right, if Navy Hill isn't happening, we're not coming there. Bye. Not a problem? 
Because again, our money that's being generated from these corporations is just going back to the corporations. That they're not creating quality jobs, or if a massive hotel complex right. were to be built around the Coliseum, that does or service jobs and restaurants right. and everything that doesn't. And they, cut they into want the poverty them, rate for you. And they're wanting them so quickly that there's not time to train the people and get them the quality training and uh, licensing for them to participate. Steve Markell is backing the culinary school in in you know North Churchill. He's also a backer of this project, and he wants to feed the system. You have restaurant people in the city who are many of them are no fans of Lavar Stoney, who are saying we need we have a desperate shortage of people of short order cooks and. Yeah. Well, look, we can continue to hire people, and we can. The city is growing. And as far as the market on 25th Street, we already have heard that they're failing. (laughs) We know that the neighborhood right there can't actually even shop there because they can't afford it. Stop promising these things that aren't for the community and be surprised when they fail because we can't afford it. And then you all come in and say, well, we need more people that can make money, afford it, and and the poor people get pushed out. This is a cycle we keep seeing over and over. So no, we don't need the co-star jobs. No, we don't need VCU to have more business buildings. No, we need the actual jobs that can lift people out of poverty as well as just your mom and pop store open up a business. That's not going to be able to happen in Navy Hill. Right. I mean, and, and there are ways to also make TIFs work if we have the safeguards. Tax incremental financing. That if we have the safeguards, but Navy Hill has refused to put those things in. I mean, the, we just have to start at the basics. And I, I keep keeping it high level because I am not a developer. I don't want to go there. But what I will say as far as the narratives is that people are learning. And whether it's statewide or just here in Richmond, we're finding each other and we're realizing we all have the same enemies that are trying to push us out. And the power is building with the people. And so when the corporations are coming in and using their same old lines to, we need this, we got to incentivize, we we have to dig up the ground, the sewage and all that, that means extra money. So we need the subsidies. I actually sat in a Navy Hill meeting last weekend that was supposed to be for the 8th district. It was in the 6th district, in my district, at a black church. Michelle Mosby brought everybody in and sat up there and told people that in order to save them and get jobs for returning citizens, we had to give free stuff to rich white people. She said she was watching a movie, and in the end, sometimes the black women have just got to work with the racist white man, and that's what she's doing, to try and do it for her people. I say if this is the way and the process that we have to make it work for our people, then we need to take a long look in the mirror and listen to the actual people that we call our heroes in Black History Month. Because this is not what they said. Martin Luther King died because he started talking about money, and that's what's happening right now. Part of the unseen that you don't hear about is what types of threats and things people like me get all the time. That's why the Navy Hill tagging me on Twitter and coming after me and trying to blame stuff on me wasn't a surprise. Because they've been in my inbox. They've been everywhere. They've been telling people to tell me to lay, lay low. But these are the same things we heard in Buckingham when they were pushing on Union Hill. This is important for us to stand by the goodness of of what we really want and not give it all away to corporations. We're never going to get people involved and engaged for what we need unless we start being real and saying, hey, this is going to be hard. This is going to be long. But if we build it the right way, we don't need to keep inviting the rich people in to push us out. There is hope for that. And we can do that by electing the right people on our side. And we can do that by electing smart people 
that are good in economics, like Sally Hudson out in Charlottesville, who's the only um, person that understands economics. She's an economist, the only one in legislature. So stop telling me that we have that this is our only plan. We're not even tapping into the people that know about this. We're only tapping into a utility company that wants to do this. You're being short-minded and you're making it sound impossible to continue the same white supremacist narratives that have been pushing us out here in the former capital confederacy for the last 400 years. I don't need the baby steps. We need a shift now. And that takes joining people like Richmond for All. We've had over 100 members and we just started just a few months ago. We just started taking former memberships just a few months ago. Every day that they try and throw wrenches in our plan, we get more and more members. For $2 a month, you can be part of us. We've made this accessible for all people. But we don't go after grants. That's why we are using people power and small donations and volunteer staff and committees. We are organized. So yeah, we might sound a lot like the AOC people. And if we do and that works for you, then come join us. And if we don't, you're scared of that. Just look at what we're doing. All of these are wins and we are winning. So I just invite more people to come win with us. Feels is, good. Is this, a, this sounds a little Pentagonese and technical, but is there any way for the, biz, the captains of business uh, to kind of come in and, and with humility show their exposed necks and say, we want to build something from scratch again with you, Chelsea, and with Richmond for All? Would you be open to that or is that a non-starter to work with corporations? If Dominion, if Altria, if the Goodwins, <laughs> if the U-Crops, everybody, the Hotel Commission. You know, I think that Dominion needs to focus on charging us a reasonable rate instead of uh, building projects and arenas for fun. Uh, so Dominion isn't someone I could see myself or us doing business for. And I'm not the spokesperson of Richmond for All. But what I will say is rich people are not the devils, right? I think that people with wealth can be helpful. But this entire project could have been done with, the, with our support if they had just paid for it themselves. There's no reason to take all these bonds and put our city at risk to build your passion project, to build your own dream. Yeah, pay for it yourself and watch the reinvestment. Watch us build. Watch your actual investment of the people work rather than us giving you a corporate coupon and then saying it was good for us. Well, what's next? I want to get an understanding uh, yeah. in the few minutes we have left with you. What's next for Richmond for all if and when Navy Hill oh. gets well, sidelined for good? We are going to celebrate like hell when this is really over. And next up is really these November elections and building people power and understanding where our voices are needed and really making public education here in Richmond and the bordering counties understand what's at risk. So please follow us on Richmond for All on all things. Richmondforall.org is out there. And ask us questions. You know, we, we have some amazing minds, data, geeks, analysts. I call them geeks. But, you know, data analysts, um, people that are doing all the numbers and the research. Like the team that we have is incredible. Um, so please let us know if you have questions, curiosities. I, I, I do have a curiosity, actually. I remember during yeah. the no stadium in the bottom thing, there were a lot of people in the kind of the Tony River Road corridor that were really outspokenly against it. And there were people in Jackson Ward mm -hmm. and people in Churchill who were against it. So what kind of coalition building is being done here? Clearly, it's not oh. just a, a downtown centric movement. Oh, no, not at all. So we have people from all over the city that hate this project. People that you haven't even seen come out that are being able to support us. And so it's not just the coalitions that you're going to see publicly. It's also very privately. But yes, our membership spreads from all over the city the, of people that have seen a chance and an opportunity to organize together. 
mostly against this project and or for public schools, which we see a very direct connection with. Elaborate on that. Again, just the funding is that if you're not progressively taxing the people that are making all the money, our general fund isn't going to have any money. If we don't have any money in the general fund, it doesn't trickle down to our schools. So the only way to get that without having these big corporations come and say, hey, we'll build it, it'll come, is just tax them. Chelsea Higgs-Wise of Richmond for All and the show on WRIR Race Capital. I can't thank you enough for finally coming on. Thanks for having me, Robin. Full disclosure, our engineer this week is John Valentine. Special thanks to my producer, Kelly Libby. This show airs on NPR member station VPM News 88.9, on NPR.org and the trusty NPR One app, and always on iTunes at link fullDRadio.com. Please do subscribe early and often. I'm Robin Farzad. Talk to you next week.